Welcome to my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I look for in these episodes is craft wisdom, essentially wisdom that only people who are in the battlefield of daily creation have access to. A lot of people talk about creativity and write about creativity, but really the only thing they've done is talk and write about creativity. What I look for is people who are creative and have this access to techniques and mindsets that only they have access to. Today I interviewed Joey Greiner. Joey was a DJ in New York City before he moved to Paris to become a DJ there and ended up doing a lot of work with Station F, the new co-working station that is uh, put on by the French government that it, with help from the French government. Uh, he was doing the social media for Station F and then ended up meeting his French co-founder and they started an app, Wuju, that helps people meet before events. Basically, you can reach out to people before you go to the event and uh, develop a relationship before so that when you get there, you can kind of already know who they are in, in a sense and it kind of break down the barriers towards uh, meeting people at events. Uh, the name of the podcast is Crazy Wisdom. If you like it, please go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, we also would appreciate any reviews if you find what we do valuable. Thank you. Have a great day. Sure. Uh, I am uh, the co-founder of the mobile application Wujo. Uh, I'm also a DJ and a business school professor here in Paris. Very cool. And um, what brought you to Paris originally? I got here two years ago to do my MBA in digital marketing. I always wanted to uh, live in Europe and uh, grad school is much cheaper uh, uh-huh. here as well. Uh-huh. And I lived in New York my whole life and I was ready for uh, a change and uh, Paris is just a beautiful city. Uh-huh. That's, a, that's a pretty creative way to find out a new opportunity is just to move to another country uh, and then go study there. I've done it a couple times myself. I did it in Thailand and a few other places. and. Uh, and how has living in a foreign country that's not your own in a different language, how has that changed your creativity or changed your ability to be creative? Uh, did you come up with the, your idea for the app here in Paris? So uh, the original idea of the app was not mine. It was my co-founder's. Uh-huh. Um, I met him while I was DJing at a club here in Paris. Cool. And um, he's actually an airline pilot for Air France and a, uh, a developer. Uh-huh. Uh, and he had come up with this idea for an app. Um, and it was an initially uh, a dating app for festivals and uh, nightclubs and any kind of events. Uh, the app would sync with your Facebook events and you can match with other people that are going to the same parties or cultural event, basically anything there was a Facebook event for, you could match with those kind of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had uh, come up with this idea on his own and built the app, but um, he wanted someone uh, that could develop the business aspect of it. Mm-hmm and uh, uh, market it, get people using it, and um, I was DJing, uh, and uh, he liked my music, so he came to, to talk to me, and uh, we exchanged uh, contacts, and then uh, he saw a few weeks later that I was attending an event, uh, a meetup for startups, uh, and uh, at this place called The Family, which is like a startup hub here in Paris uh, that... Uh, so he saw that I was interested in startups too. He sent me a message and said, hey, I've got this project that I'm working on. You want to talk about it? And then uh, he told me the idea. I loved it. And uh, I said, yeah, I definitely uh, am down to be your co-founder. Huh. And uh, so this was a little over a year ago. Uh-huh. 
And then uh, I got a job here at Station F, working for the, uh, the facility itself. And to explain for our listeners, what is, what is Station F? Uh, Station F is the biggest startup campus in the world. It's uh, located in Paris. There are 30 different uh, accelerator and incubator programs and uh, a thousand startups that uh, have their offices here. Uh-huh. And uh, you were working for them, but now you're starting the company out of Station F. Yes, so Station F opened a year ago, and uh, for the first six months, I was uh, working in sort of a community manager type role, doing all their social media, uh, newsletter, updating the website, that kind of thing, uh-huh. and mo- uh, monitoring like the, the uh, Slack for the campus as well. Interesting. And so what has been the biggest challenge moving to a new country and trying to do business in that country? Uh, well, aside from the language barrier, that, that's probably the biggest one. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, in France, there's a lot of uh, administrative red tape. Yeah. There's so much paperwork for everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, a running joke, but uh, everyone knows it just uh, takes a long time to get anything done because of all of uh, the procedural administrative uh, red tape. But they've been talking about changing it, particularly here, right? Or is it, has it become more easier? Because you were mentioning before we started talking about a, a grant that they give you and that they offer services here at Station F for startups. To... Yeah, so um, the French Tech, La French Tech uh, has moved their headquarters here to Station F. So uh, what the Fr- La French Tech is, it's a... Um, a hub of uh, different public services that can help businesses, uh, whether it's um, for finding out how to incorporate your company or uh, how to deal with like import duties. Uh, and also there's the um, La Bourse French Tech is what I was uh, talking to you about earlier, uh, which is from the, uh, the Bank of Public Investment, which is a, a grant for startups to uh, help develop their projects. Mm-hmm. So they're offering assistance through that red tape, basically. Or the, the, the people coming up with the laws are here as well in the building in the hope that they will uh, kind of talk more with the startups or, or and stuff like that? Um, it's more assisting through the, the red the tape here, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But uh, definitely a lot of politicians and lawmakers have visited the place. Uh-huh. Uh, the president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, was here a couple times. Uh-huh. and. Uh, uh-huh. That's really interesting. Um, how do the French do? What are the difference between the differences between the way the French do business and the way that Americans do business? Hmm. Uh, it's definitely uh, here in Paris. Uh, we're in at Station F, which is like a startup hub, which is definitely um, a uh, atypical of the whole French environment. This is people that are really motivated to create something new. And uh, that's generally not the typical French mindset. Is uh, mm. uh, it's more of a if something's not broken, don't fix it. Uh, mm. uh, this is the way we've always done things, mm. kind of a thing. Mm. And uh, it's uh, a little bit uh, slow to change, a little bit reluctant for that kind of a thing. And uh, here in this like beacon of positivity and creativity, in uh, in a generally. Uh, more pessimistic country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and have you spent time in that kind of pessimistic part of the, the this culture as well? Or 
Boy, I mean, it, it's around everywhere. Uh, generally, uh, French people love to complain. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't think I'm saying anything that they don't already know. Uh, it's just part of the, uh, the culture to complain about everything and uh, just be generally pessimistic about, uh, about things. So that's kind of really what drew me to the whole startup community in Paris was that people were actually taking initiative and believing that they could create something new and... Uh, And that's the strangest thing that I've noticed is that in in San Francisco there's like a huge amount of French entrepreneurs. You like you run into French people everywhere in 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 San Francisco. Um, Absolutely, it seems like they make up a huge percentage of the foreign entrepreneurs who come uh, to San Francisco. Uh, You meet a lot of Australians, a lot of um, people from India, a lot of other people, but French seems to take up a big big part of the foreign entrepreneurs in San Francisco and they all of the, the ones that I've met are super positive and they don't complain and stuff like that so it's really interesting this kind of like the this this mentality that kind of started in Silicon Valley of believing that you can do things that nobody else can do um, and then it kind of takes off in a certain part of the population in different countries uh, but then uh, but then those the rest of the country kind of remains the same but it's kind of influenced as well because because San Francisco is also contrarian towards the rest of the United States as well. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's really that's really interesting. Um, what is the coolest thing you've seen come out of Station F in the last six months? Oof, that is a a very difficult question. There, uh-huh. there's been a, a a lot of uh, a lot of cool things. Uh-huh. Uh, so many different uh, projects that I think uh, I respect a lot for di- for different. Uh, um, different reasons. Like uh, I've, I've become friends with a lot of other founders of different uh, of different startups. Like uh, some of my best friends here have a a food startup called uh, Deer Muesli, and uh, it's uh, granola. Yeah. But the way they market it and uh, uh, brand it, it's just it's amazing. They have an awesome social media presence, and it's a great product. And they're great guys, and they definitely deserve all the success that they're having. Very cool. Um, and, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about what you are working on and the stress that you faced in starting it? So, so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we initially thought of, uh, Wujo, our app as a dating app for people attending the same events. Uh, but we, uh, had a big problem a couple of months ago when, uh, Facebook had, uh, their whole data privacy scandal with, uh, the Cambridge Analytica um, coming out and um, so in response to that uh, Facebook had blocked a lot of developer permissions a lot of API's that uh, that people were using to make their products work and um, the one of the API's that they blocked was events so uh, our app was unable to sync automatically with Facebook events anymore so uh, we were kind of faced with the decision uh, well, first we thought we would ju- uh, we would get the the permissions back eventually, uh, because Facebook had to review all of uh, all of the apps again, give them permissions to use the different permissions, and uh, initially we were waiting because we were hoping that they uh, they would give us those permissions back. But then when we found out from Facebook that we weren't going to be able to have those permissions again, we were forced to uh, kind of either abandon the project or pivot. So uh, the direction we took is uh, now we are more of a professional networking app. Mm. So we uh, sync automatically with Eventbrite events, and we're going to be adding Meetup soon as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. we're still matching people that are attending uh, the same events, mm-hmm. so helping people to meet uh, the most relevant people 
where they're going to be already. Yeah. Uh, but instead of uh, a romantic or uh, friends partying kind of context, it's more uh, for professional purposes. But okay. it also you can meet is, friends doing it as well. And is that because Meetup and Eventbrite have more professional events? Or, yes. Okay. Um, rather than the than oh yeah dating events and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Well, um, Facebook has any kind of event, yeah. so uh, it could be your friend's birthday party at their home, or it could be a music festival with 100,000 people. Mm. So, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eventbrite and Meetup tend to be more conferences, um, workshops, uh, people with similar interests that definitely there's a lot of like, you can uh, make friends going to these kinds of events, but it tends to have a little bit more of a professional context. Got it. Like the events here at Station F all use Eventbrite as okay. the, the registration. Interesting. And that seems actually like a lot of what I've learned from a lot of platforms that start on Facebook as their main, um, their main kind of source is basically end up running into the same problem that you faced. Like, yeah. uh, I think it was Zingier or it was another company had like 90%, it was slight had like 90% of their traffic coming from Facebook and then Facebook all of a sudden just shut them off. Yeah. And it was like, this was a huge business. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And like, and then, so it's actually, I think a healthy thing that, that happened to you guys early on because basically now, now you guys are, are thinking of different ways that, that can kind of bring more sustainable growth and not tie yourself to like one, one platform. Basically. Yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely, uh, uh, happy to not be so dependent on mm -hmm. Facebook because there are definitely businesses that are way bigger than ours that uh, were completely screwed basically yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> when uh, when Facebook decided to cut them off. Yeah, they have no other options. So uh, mm -hmm. we're early enough where we can pivot and uh, add different sources. Uh, can you talk about that experience when you noticed that and like how what the stress involved with that of like once you figured out that you guys wouldn't get those permissions and stuff like that maybe some techniques that you'd use to to work through that stress or well uh yeah when we found out it was a it was a big shock and uh uh almost uh um not uh i couldn't process it right away they're like no this can't be real because uh, we'd put a lot of time and work into this and then uh so that lasted a few weeks with like no news at all from Facebook. Uh, just a few blog posts saying that, yeah, we, we cut some developer APIs, but they didn't say which ones, why, for how long, anything like that. But you guys knew that it was yours because you guys lost access to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a few weeks later, uh, there was the, uh, the F8 conference mm -hmm. where uh, Facebook uh, um, announces the new projects that they're working on and uh, they announced that uh, they would be resuming app reviews, which was good news for us. And, but they also announced that they were incorporating a dating uh, feature into the Facebook platform uh, from which events would also be a part. So uh, it was a, a, a double-edged sword. Like it was ha happy and not happy that, yes, they're reviewing apps again, but basically they're using our value proposition in their existing app already. So... Uh, Kind of hard to compete with Facebook. Yeah, and that, that happens quite a bit with, with startups. Is then a, a big you know big company will just develop. will see a need to develop, and if they don't buy you, then it's it just kind of like it sucks. Um, yeah. Yep. And so how did that? How did it? Uh, especially after that F eight kind of thing happened, uh, what were some of the techniques that you used to kind of get through it, or like how what was the mental state? If you can kind of like, and it's hard to be exact with this type of stuff. Yeah. But, uh -huh. 
Well, it uh, it was hopeful okay. that uh, when they they said that they would review apps again, and we would uh, uh, hope that maybe people wouldn't be comfortable using Facebook for dating, and uh, mm-hmm. we thought that uh, if we could uh, have uh, better branding, like uh, more respectful of people's privacy, since uh, mm-hmm. Facebook had uh, just been kind of outed for not respecting people's uh, data privacy. So we were hoping we could uh, do more of a, a positive spin on our uh, our product. But then uh, once we found out a few weeks later, uh, more like a month or so later, we finally got uh, answers from Facebook mm-hmm. that uh, we would not be getting that permission back. Uh, then it uh, definitely uh, uh, took a toll on us. Like my, uh, my co-founder was not sure he even wanted to continue the project anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He wasn't sure that uh, he wanted to do uh, the pivot because it was, it was so different from his initial idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been uh, tough for me trying to convince him that there is still a successful business ahead. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. if we act quickly and uh, move in this other direction, we can still have a, a very successful product in business. And uh, mm-hmm. That's a really yeah. good point. It's like, cause co-founder issues are huge. Like it's a huge thing you deal with with startups and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, what have you learned? What are some lessons that you've learned that like about how to work with your co-founder or communicate and stuff like that? Well, we've, we've been, uh, good partners in the fact that we have a similar vision. We're very complimentary. Like, uh, he's more of a technical guy and, um, uh, can just sit alone at his computer for hours and uh, and code and be very proficient like that. And uh, I, I thrive in a more uh, interactional uh, environment, much more social, yes. So uh, I go to a ton of networking events and uh, meet new people all the time. And uh, I'm good at developing the business and uh, finding partnerships and clients and stuff like that. Cool. So uh, we have the same vision but complementary personalities. Mm-hmm. Um. And what uh, what uh, um, what events have been the most helpful to you, or like what is it about meeting people that you think is key to the business, um, and kind of developing those relationships? Like, because I, I so in my in my experience, there's parts of the business that are just kind of grinding, and then there are part of parts of the business that are up to serendipitous uh, kind of like, you know, like I met that guy at a coffee shop and he invested, he ended up investing in my company or something like that. Like, so yeah. how do you kind of balance that in your own head as to, as to what you should be spending your time on uh, at, the, at the moment? Um, I tend to uh, really enjoy the serendipity of it. Uh-huh. Like I, I love to go to events. Like I, I go to a networking event or an after work or a meetup uh, at least three or four days a week. Mm. And, uh, I, I definitely feel like, uh, uh, developing a, uh, a professional and social network has been the most advantageous thing, uh, for me. Mm. That's been my, my strategy. So I started going to, uh, meetups and, uh, afterworks networking type events as soon as I finished my school, mm. uh, as soon as I finished, uh, my master's cause I was looking for my job. Mm. I'm looking for a for the next, uh, the next thing. And, um, so I started going to, uh, the family, uh, on the recommendation of a friend started going to all of these, uh, uh, talks by entrepreneurs and founders and stuff like that. Mm. And, uh, I think I probably learned more from these kind of workshops and talks than I did in all of my business school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I started meeting great people and, uh, mm. I actually, uh, 
found someone there who recommended me for my job here. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. so uh, yeah. it, uh, it all works out like that. I think uh, just meeting the right people is a, a great way to, to find the next opportunity. Hmm. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about like how your DJ, DJing career and like what got you into that and how, uh, uh, what it does for you that makes, makes you continue to do it? So uh, I started DJing uh, in New York, where I'm from, uh, when I was about 19 years old. And uh, in the States, uh, at least in New York, you have to be 21 to get into the clubs. And uh, I had a a friend who was a DJ who had been doing it for a while. And initially, he uh, was able to get me into the club underage, under the premise that I was uh, DJing with him. And then I actually learned how to DJ, like, in clubs in New York City. And then uh, after I finished uh, college, I did not see myself in a normal office job. So I continued to work in nightclubs. And uh, I started my first company uh, doing promotion for nightclubs. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that time, I was doing more promoter type work, organizing parties, bringing people to clubs. Um, and then after a couple of years of that, I really uh, missed playing music and I started DJing again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had my first company for about eight years in New York before mm. uh, before deciding to move to Paris. Mm. And then you have you been DJing here too as well? I have been, yes. Okay. It was uh, definitely difficult to, uh, to break into uh, the market at first. Mm. Even having played the biggest clubs in New York, in Miami, L.A., mm. um, and playing big music festivals like uh, Mysteryland and Tomorrowland. Uh, then I arrived in Paris and started meeting the managers and artistic directors of clubs oh. that uh, I was introduced uh, to by my friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like back in my friends here in, okay, uh, yeah. in Paris, uh-huh, yes. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, quick uh, backtrack so organizing clubs in New York. I had a lot of international friends, people that would come and study in New York for six months, a year, or do an internship or something like that. So a lot of French people came to study in New York, mm. and uh, I became friends with uh, particular exchange groups that would come out to my parties a few nights a week for six months straight. So mm. we, be- we became friends, and uh, when I moved here... Um, I, I, I had, uh, yes, some, some people to hang out with already, which was really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, so you started going to these different promoters and that you got introduced to, but it was still difficult to get the actual. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they said, Oh, that, that's interesting. That's really cool. Uh, and I, uh, I, I said, uh, well, do you have a, an opening like for me? Do you have a night where I can play? And they're like, Oh yeah, you've, you've played in New York and these big music festivals, but where have you played in Paris? <laughs> I'm like, are you are you kidding me? Uh, I just got here, but uh, it's a very closed system. Everyone like hires their friends, mm-hmm. and uh, and then how did you end up breaking in? So uh, my friends uh, organized parties as well, uh, and I started uh, playing for their parties, and that kind of helped me uh, build a um, a resume of of clubs in mm-hmm. Paris. Where now, if artistic directors ask me where else I've played, I can list some names of good places of known places so now it's uh it's easier for them to hire me and do you have to change the music to suit french tastes uh well i have a, a very particular music style okay. where um does not work for every club does oh. not it's it's not open format music it's not a uh, um mainstream i'm mm-hmm. not going to play stuff you hear on the radio uh, I play um, electronic music, okay. which is not for everyone. Yeah. Um, so, and there are so many subgenres of electronic music as well. Yeah. 
So uh, the style that I play is uh, a mix of deep house, tech house, soulful, funky, groovy, with lots of uh, African and Latin rhythms and influences. And uh, that's when are you playing next? Uh, I am playing Saturday okay. at uh, the Hoxton Hotel. Very cool. I uh, wish we could get that get this out there before then, but uh, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. It sounds like right up my alley. Um, and so, musically, how do you find your? How do you make your life most amenable to uh, being creative in your DJ career? Like, what are the things that you do in order to help you stay creative in that sphere? Or is well, it something that just happens? I think it's just such a natural part of my life is that I just love music so much that uh, I'm always looking uh, online for new music coming out and uh, I also go out several nights a week and I love to listen to other DJs playing and uh, I think uh, Shazam is my best friend, Mm -hmm. just uh, Mm -hmm. stealing tracks from other DJs Uh but uh, uh, yeah and I spend a lot of time looking online, definitely a few hours uh, every week Uh uh, looking for new music. Do you, did you, when you began, or do you still get nervous before you go on stage? Uh, I guess it, it depends on the, the size of the, of the venue and uh, whether I played there before or not. Like a, a place that I've played before, it's, uh, it's uh, much more comfortable. But if it's a new place, like if it's a, uh, a new club that I know is like very big and a lot of people are going to hear me, or a, a festival, something like that, where it's gonna, even more people, then I'll definitely get, a, get nervous. And what does that feel like? In your body, um, I usually if I get really nervous, like if I'm playing a huge new club, uh, what I think is going to be a big opportunity, I can't eat. Yeah. Uh, mm. I uh, definitely uh, uh, I need to pee all the time, <laughs> and uh, that's that's uh, stressful. Oh, if I can't eat, I'm drinking a lot of water, yeah. and that that's mm, uh, that's reason. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And is, do you have any techniques that you kind of like? use to like calm yourself down or not even calm yourself down but to like reframe the situation to like so I let me give you some backdrop I want I, I interviewed somebody about two months ago um, who changed my whole view on everything when he uh, brought up this book called the upside of stress and basically what the upside of stress it says is that all, all everything you've heard about stress over the last 50 years is bullshit that uh, it's not a pathology it's a, actually like it's not a disease it's actually part of life and that mm-hmm. if you kind of arrange your life to to remove yourself from stress you're going to end up having lots more stress basically so the key is to actually reframe the stress not as a uh, threat but as a challenge Um, and then that activates a part of your nervous system that essentially uh, makes you more open to seeing it for what what it is as as opposed to seeing it as a threat and kind of hunker over and and protect yourself Uh, so the reason why I ask you like what is it? Is there anything you do in that moment where you kind of notice that stress, kind of in like in like? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I I know that once I make one smooth transition, then I'm comfortable. Okay. So as soon as I I know that I properly mix the second song into the first song, it's like okay, you've done this before. You know how to do this. And so mm-hmm. I know that once I start, I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely like a, a little bit of butterflies in the stomach uh, and this. Uh, an empty stomach because uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm definitely too, too nervous <laughs> to eat for, uh, for at least half the day uh, ahead, ahead of that. But yeah, w- once I start, I'm good. Yeah, and I think that's, that's very common. It's just like once you actually start the thing. Does that, does that say let's, let's talk not, not about DJ, but about something else that's outside of your comfort zone. Does that ever prevent you from doing something? Maybe from even like talking to a girl on the subway or something like that. That, that feeling of just like, what I'm getting at is like that 
feeling that prevents most of us from doing something is yeah. that thought inside of our head, just like, whoa, no, I can't do that. That's not me or something like that. No, absolutely. I get in my own head a lot. And if I see someone I want to talk to, uh, I, uh, I can definitely work it up to be too big of a deal. And I end up won't starting that mm-hmm. not starting that conversation that that does happen to me quite often. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think like anything, once you get into a rhythm, like uh, uh, it's been referred to now a lot more as a flow state, mm-hmm. like uh, then uh, uh, it's much easier once uh, once you've got momentum. Yeah. But uh like anything, I think creating that initial momentum is is difficult. Like uh, mm. uh, if you're going to a party, just starting the first conversation with the first person is a huge hurdle to uh, to overcome. Uh-huh. But once you uh, have that, it just kind of exactly works. Yeah, yeah, you talk to one person and then you start talking to the next person and stuff like that. So you, uh, where when do you experience flow in your life? Uh, definitely when I'm DJing, yeah. for sure. Once uh, I'm I'm in the moment and I can read the crowd and uh, feel their. Uh, um, their reaction. Uh, I can uh, test new things, push them one way or the other with the with the music, and uh, definitely can feel a great flow during that. Also, uh, working out, uh, whether it's lifting weights, doing yoga, or uh, martial arts. Uh, I grew up doing martial arts, mm. and uh, when I'm sparring, definitely in the flow state. Mm. Uh, um, and what things bring you out of the flow state? Uh, like leaving the flow state having yeah, been are, in it and no, uh, no, like what are things that like are things that are really difficult that that kind of get in the way or obstacles to flow state like I, I uh, think uh, just the initial starting yeah the same thing I, yeah I, I just get uh, I build things up to be too much and then uh, I, I tend to procrastinate a lot because even though I know something isn't is going to be painless once I do it uh but uh, and I'll, I'll be better off for having done it. I still push it off, and I, I'll do it later just because I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And that's uh, I end up uh, pushing a lot of things off and uh, becoming much less productive just because I don't know. I, I build it up in my head that it's it's a way bigger deal than it is. And once I actually do those things, I'm like, wow, that that wasn't so bad, and much better off for having actually done it. Mm. And so we've got about five minutes left. What is one piece of advice or one book or one thing you've heard recently um, that kind of our listeners can use to access creative flow more or kind of um, manage the stress that they face in their lives? Hmm. That is a, that is a tough one. Um, I'd say uh, uh, the people that I tend to uh, listen to their content motivational people like Gary Vaynerchuk is says things that like just start mm-hmm. and uh, where the, where it's uh, people want to st- start their own podcast or YouTube channel or something like that he gives the uh, uh, the advice to document and not create mm-hmm. just uh, share with the share with the world what you're doing and mm-hmm. people will find that interesting instead of putting a lot of pressure on yourself to build up saying I have to create something it has to be perfect and curated you can just document what you're doing mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. people will probably find it interesting if you're genuine about it mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. that's really interesting because that's like I feel like in the 50s and the 60s and stuff like that everything was like a really big production so that mm-hmm. people had to put a lot of work into creating any sort of media and stuff like that so it was this like crafted thing and now the internet is making it so that people well, yeah, there's a couple of different things going on, but one, the fakeness of the internet for the last like 10 years has caused people to not like fakeness anymore. Yeah. Um, and so now authenticity is becoming interesting to people. 
uh, but then the internet, the de democratization of it seems also interesting. But I think people are just kind of getting fed up of all this fake advertising. Because in our generation, like advertising stopped working on us, I believe. Whereas our parents, like it still worked. And then if you go mm -hmm. to grandparents, like people who have never had TV, advertising works really well with them because yeah. they haven't built up these barriers. Uh, so it's really interesting you bring up the content part because that's something I've, I've listened to that advice a lot. And it's, it's been a huge... Um, Gary Vaynerchuk has been a huge influence in my own life. Um, yeah, I, I wrote my uh, my master's thesis on on his uh, theories, actually. Really? What yeah. was your What was your? Uh, it, it was basically uh, content creation and distribution strategies. Okay. So which I. Uh, um, use my job at Station F uh, with their social media, mm -hmm. basically have, creating one longer piece of content and then uh, distributing it over every other channel. Okay. So basically taking a long format video mm -hmm. and chopping it up into clips for Instagram, for Facebook, for Twitter, and kind of linking everything and blog posts and kind mm -hmm. of linking everything back to each other to create a lot of content around one initial piece of content. And what was the name of your company again? The name of my company yeah, is right. called Wujo. And Wujo, are you doing that for Wujo right now? Uh, right now, uh, we're not so focused on creating content. content okay, no. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because you guys, what is what is your main focus right now? Uh, our focus is uh, well, retooling the app right now. Oh, we're rebuilding yeah, the app for mm -hmm. uh, for more of a professional purpose, but also looking for uh, events to partner with. Mm -hmm. Are you guys live now? Uh, we're live, okay. but it still has more of uh, the social feel than the professional feel. Mm -hmm. But uh, we'll be swapping out the Facebook log login for LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So and uh, how um, how can people find you? Uh, all of my social media is the same. It's at Joey Griner on uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, SoundCloud. Mm -hmm. uh, do you put you put your DJ stuff on SoundCloud? I as do. Well? Yeah. Very cool. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's uh, been a pleasure. Yeah.